Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 12. Isaiah 64, 1 through 12. This also is God's holy word. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned, In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? May we go to our God and ask for the Lord's blessings in the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our compassionate Father, we thank you for your word indeed is truth. And Father, we pray, even as we are concerned about the honor of your name, even in this world, Father, that we would be most concerned about the way that we honor your name. Father, we pray that you would be exalted in our hearts, in our lives, by our words, by our actions. Father, we pray that among all people, that we, your people, that Christ church, that we would be the chief repenters, that we would be the ones who humble ourselves before you and seek your face. Father, we pray that you might send a great revival to our land. And we acknowledge, Father, how much it is that we need it in the church first. And Father, even as we who are calling upon your name, that we would do so in faithfulness, with diligence, with whole hearted devotion, Father, that it is these that are the stages of revival and that eventually you bring those from outside in when we, your people, are serious about the worship of you. Father, we pray that you would guide your people, that we would consider our ways, that we would be repenting, that we would be open to change, that we would not be hardened in the ways that we have, that we would break bad habits, that we would seek your face. 
Father, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And Father, we pray that we would desire your glory, that your name would be praised. We pray, Father, if any are here who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to do that mighty work. Remind us of our dependence upon you. And we pray, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Here I think about the state of the church, the state of the church today, the state of the church in our nation. And here I'm seeing that we are much in need of a revival. And the concern is not so much about our society as, as much as it is about the church itself. And the church consists of her people. That when God's people are serious about worshiping God, about serving him, about devoting our lives to him, it is then when those outside will begin to look in and say, wow, they are serious about obeying their God, about worshiping him. That is our proper witness, is when we, as God's people, are diligent to serve and to honor and to worship him. Here, we see in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet of Judah in Jerusalem. He, his ministry was during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So he was in the, about the 700s BC. It was during the Assyrian exile of the northern tribes of Israel, uh, beginning in 732, and that ended with the fall of Samaria in 722 BC. In the book of Isaiah, we have an account of Sennacherib, who uh, was from Assyria, that he threatened to invade Judah, but yet God protected him. And the word that God promised is just as Sennacherib came, so he will also leave. It was God who sent the angel who defeated or killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. This was one angel. He didn't send two or five. He sent one. And after these Assyrians died, exactly as God said, that Sennacherib returned as he came. And then God sent Sennacherib's two sons as Sennacherib was worshiping in the temple of his idol. That he sent his two sons to slay him by the sword. Isaiah warned Judah of the sins of hypocrisy greed, and spiritual apathy. The outward result of this sin was that Judah was in shambles, both morally and politically. But that wasn't the real shame. The shame was where they were spiritually. In Isaiah, we have uh, what's referred to as the evangelical prophet. In it, we have the good news of a virgin who will be with child. Isaiah chapter 7. We also have Uh, The promise in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, our Lord Jesus, and by by his wounds we are healed. So we see in this chapter, Isaiah 64, that with the deplorable state of church and society, Christians with all humility should pray for salvation and revival. With the deplorable state of church and society, Christians with all humility should pray for salvation and revival. We'll look at this in three points First is the posture of prayer for revival, in verses 1 through 3. 
Second, the penitence that precedes revival, verses 4 through 7. And third, the pathetic precursor to revival in verses 8 through 12. So the first point, the posture of prayer for revival, verses 1 through 3. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Here, Isaiah offers the prayer. He sees the need. He's asking that God's power would be manifested. For God to rend the heavens and come down, he's asking for some type of cataclysmic event, like the parting of the Red Sea, or uh, was it the the case of of, uh, Korah, and the, the opening of the earth and the swallowing up of Korah and his followers. There was the need, the obvious need, that the northern tribes of Israel Uh, The ten tribes were taken off to captivity in Assyria, and Judah was in danger. Judah was in turmoil. They were in a moral and political mess. There were threats all around. Here, we see that there's the desire mentioned in verse 2, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Here, it is a good thing. It is a good thing when we desire that God's name would be known. But how often is it that uh, we, we pray for this revival, we pray that the world would tremble, but is it because we don't see our proper place, that Christ, it's not Christ, it's actually Christ's people, we ourselves, that, that our, our seat of authority, our seat of influence, our seat of popularity has gone down. And because of that, we think that there's a need for revival. Because God's people are despised. God, God is, or God's people are the ones who receive shame. But you realize, this is not the need for revival. It's revival because God's name is not honored. That Jesus told us that we who are followers of him, they despised, the world despised him, they will despise us too. That is the proper We are the proper recipients of that dishonor and disrespect from the world. We should expect that. There is nothing wrong with that. There is is everything to be expected. This is the proper understanding of uh, the world rejects Christ. The world rejects us too. We should desire his name to receive glory, honor, and praise. Here, we think about the, the plan, the desire that God would send the mountains to quake, that he would send a cataclysmic event, that it would cause the Gentiles or the nations to cower. But we realize that God's plan wasn't that he would send uh, these natural disasters that he controls. He controls all of them. It's not that he would send these natural disasters and, and that the nations would tremble at his presence. God told us his plan. In Isaiah 49.6, he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here, God was saying that Israel was to be this light. They were the ones who were supposed to tell this message. They were the ones who were supposed to model it. Think about the, the blessings and the curses that God gave in the book of Deuteronomy. It's not as if Christ put an end to the blessings and curses per se. His desire, God's desire, is that Israel would be a light. And they would be the head and not the foot. 
And the blessing was if they are faithful to obey their God, that they would be the head and not the foot. But that if they were disobedient to God, then the curse would be upon them. So also the case for Christ's church. Isaiah 42, 6, God says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Again, God's design was that Israel and now the church would be a light to the nations. It's not that we should be asking for cataclysmic events so that the, the nations would cower in fear of our God. It's when nations are called to repentance, called to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Here, it's as if Isaiah is asking for revival. He's asking for revival. And perhaps we need to define that. Revival is an extraordinary and extraordinary work by God, the Holy Spirit, in the life of Christ's church. You see, the best example of that is the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This is what we read earlier. That there wasn't any ploy of men. There wasn't any, hey, if we do X, Y, and Z, then revival will come. It wasn't the work of man. It was entirely the work of the Holy Spirit. There wasn't a formula that men followed and that because of it, there, there was uh, life that God gave. It, it's like the, the time when Israel, is, is it 1 Samuel chapter 5 was it, that they thought, hey, if we bring the ark before us into battle, we will never lose. That God will force God's hand and that we will defeat all of our enemies. And what was the outcome there? They brought the ark. They lost the ark. And it's not as if God was powerless after Israel lost the ark. You remember the story about Dagon. And they, they put the, the ark in the temple of Dagon as a tribute, as, as a trophy of, hey, our God conquered their God. Yes, uh, the Philistines defeated the Israelites. But it's not as if the God Dagon had defeated the God of Israel. We see that happening where Dagon fell down. That the, the statue fell down. His head was severed. His hands were severed. They had to pick him back up. And then, then with the ark, there were, well, was it hemorrhoids or uh, strange boils in the people that they suffered. They, they sent the ark off. It's not as if God is powerless and there's no way to force God's hand. Here, we think about how how God sends revival. Does it begin with uh, the matter of prayer? That God's people are crying out to him, oh, rend the heavens and come down. We realize it's the symptoms, the symptoms of, hey, the church is despised. The church is in shambles. It is then that we realize, oh, things are bad. But what God does in revival is he opens the eyes of his own people that we would be those who first look at what we're doing. In Romans chapter 2, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This warning was to the Jews because they were the ones who were to bring this good news. They were supposed to be the light. And how often is it that, that the church, uh, that the church is, is, is guilty of the same thing? 
that among the nations, among the Gentiles, God is blasphemed because of the testimony, the poor testimony of the church. Here, we look also at the past deeds. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. The ultimately, the, the problem is not that the church and Christians are no longer the popular group. Rather, it's that God's name is dishonored. This is what we ought to be concerned about, that God's name is dishonored. He is not receiving the worship that he deserves. We think about the problem. We define the problem, and then we look at the solution. What is the problem? The problem is with us, with God's people. The problem is with the church. So this posture of prayer should remind us that our focus should be back to our God, not upon ourselves, not upon our, our favor with the world. It is God's name that is dishonored, and that should concern us greatly. That's our first point, the posture of prayer. Second, the penitence that precedes revival in verses 4 through 7. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities." There were accounts in past times of revivals. And the descriptions were that even the public reading of Scripture, that people would respond to it, that the reading of God's Word, that people would cower because they realized they were guilty of breaking God's Word in disobedience, not believing the promises of God. Here, we think about this passage, verses 4 through six, four through 7. Verses 4 and 5, it's really talking about uh, living in awe of God, the duty that God's people have at all times. And as he describes this, that you and I should be wondering, wait a minute, does that describe my life? Does that describe your life? Here in verse 4, that no eye has seen a God besides you. It sounds very much like the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. God is not saying that he has to be first and that you can have other gods as second, third, and fourth. No, he's saying that there is, you may have no gods, period, other than him. That if we're going to worship him, we must worship him exclusively. This is like the, the matter of, of marriage that in marriage, that a man must put away any other lover, any other girlfriend, that he cannot have mistresses, that the, the covenant of marriage is between one man and one woman. That a covenant with God means that all other false gods, lesser gods, are put away. But you and I have our own small g gods, don't we? Hey, the simple God of the holier-than-thou, 
also known by the fancy phrase of self-righteousness. You know that you're guilty of it if you're often thinking or if you're often saying, at least I'm not a, and you fill in the blank with whatever you want, at least I'm not one of those bad things. And you realize that in society that whatever bad thing is constantly changing. But the bottom line is, the religion of holier-than-thou did not save the Pharisees, nor will it save you. What about the God of wealth? The God of wealth, it seems like in our society, whenever there's a problem in society, whenever there's a problem in the church, we think that we can just throw money at a problem and it fixes it. And for you, as long as you make a big fat paycheck, then that's proof of God's favor. You see, God, God has given me all this wealth. He's given me this great job and all this money has come my way. It must mean that God is blessing me. It must mean that I have God's favor. No. Look at the people who are the wealthiest in the world. Look at the people who are the wealthiest in our country. How many of them honor God? None of them. They despise his name. And yet God, and, and you're right, every single dollar they have is given to them by God. But that's no sign of God's favor. And we don't need to bother to ask, what needs to be sacrificed on the altar to the God of mammon? How many things are sacrificed? Your conscience? Your commitment to the Lord? These convictions, they are fluid, are they not? They shouldn't be. As long as you have your money, as long as you have uh, a sizable retirement, that's all that matters, correct? No. The God of wealth must be destroyed. There's also the God of comfort and ease. You know what? We have our ways. And you think about how the church is supposed to influence the world, but really what's happening is the world is influencing the church. Our habits, our customs, we're following shortly after the world. It's just we're several years behind. The latter half of verse 4 Describing God is the one who acts for those who wait for him. He acts for those who wait for him. Here, this is a reminder to you and to me that the church and Christians, we must stop seeing ourselves as the effector, as the initiator, as the change agent. We see ourselves as those we wave the hand and things happen. Here, it's a reminder that we must be waiting on God. God does not wait on us. We wait on God. We're on his timeline. He is not on our timeline. Does your life, do your plans, and do your activities have any room for God? Seeing the need for revival means that you're realizing that we wait upon God and not the other way around. Amen. We wait on Him. We depend upon Him. Here, you, you read the scriptures and, and how God talks about, He says, that when Israel is faithful to follow Him, then He will send the spring rains. He will send the early and the late rains. But now, now we have irrigation, right? We, we don't need to trust in God. We don't need to pray and ask for way. We, we just have irrigation. We, we can control all those things. 
But have you ever wondered? You, you think about your lawn. My, my lawn's turning brown in, in various times, and we have to turn on the faucet, or, or, or rather, we have a new system now. It's, it's controlled, right? But it comes out of a pipe, right, this big. And, and we think about how much water can come out at once, but then you compare that to when God opens the heavens and sends rain. There's no comparison. We must wait upon God. We cannot make rain. We cannot do that by our own power. We cannot bring life. No, no man can do that. Here, I think even about the preaching of God's word. Romans 10 says that God would choose to use the means of the preaching of God's word to save sinners. Think about how, how much it is. We put a premium on that. How, how skilled, how polished, how prayerfully prepared we must be. I think about some of these revivals in the past. Uh, I'm not saying we should do this. But here you look at Jonathan Edwards. He was known as the man, the minister who would study 12 hours a day. Some people slighted him saying, hey, he actually studied too much. He didn't spend enough time with his people. But the bottom line is he, he would prepare sermons. And then he would get up there and read it in a monotonous voice, in a monotone voice. And even, even that... You think about eye contact, you think about uh, extemporaneous, no, those were all lacking. He, he, would not have, he would not have passed the class in our seminary. Reading from a manuscript, no, but you think about what God did. It wasn't the work of man, it was entirely the work of God. We're reminded that preaching is a bunch of hot air outside of the work of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in your life and mine. Waiting on God. Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Our lives, is it not waiting upon God? It's not him. It's not, it's not him waiting for us. It's us waiting upon God. In verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Here, this is a candid admission that for Israel, God's people were not joyfully doing what was right. They were going off doing their own thing. That this joyfully doing righteousness, the very description, was not a fit and start. It was not a once in a while. But what God desires of you, his people, is that we would be, we would be steadfast in the Christian life. There would not be this uh, hot and cold uh, start and stop, suddenly there's an interest and suddenly there's no longer an interest. That there would be a consistency in our service of him. That there would be a dependability. That there would be steadfastness. Here, God desires that we would be persistent in our worship of him, in our serving him. That we would desire to do what is right all the time. That we would desire to do what is right without, without looking at the polls. Right? You think about the typical politician. Uh, he, he won't even use the bathroom unless he takes and looks at the polls or whatnot he should. We shouldn't do that. We have our standard in God's word. He calls us to obey it. And it will be particularly unpopular and unliked in our time. You and I have to accept that. We have to run with it. We have to trust the Lord that his ways are perfect. In, in that case, that means that we, we obey God and we trust him with the results. 
We trust him with the outcome. It's exactly as the apostle said, Acts, Acts 5. <clears throat> Whether or not it is right to obey God or man, you be the judge of it. They're saying, listen, we're going to obey God. You do what you need to do to us. We live with the results. Here, he continues in the latter half of verse 5. Those who remember you in your ways. How easy it is to forget God. Or at least to forget the why and the who behind all of life. The why is to glorify God for his name to be honored and praised. The who is God and not we ourselves. We are prone to forget God. Here, I'll give you an example. How often is it as you're reading your Bible, right? Consistent time of reading your Bible, eventually you'll get through this get through the Bible, whether it be in half a year or a year or, or five years or whatever's the case. Do you ever you ever read through the Bible and you get to a passage and You've read it before many times, however many times you've read through the Bible, but then you, you read it and then you say, huh, I don't ever remember reading that part in the Bible. Even though I've read it through many times before, I don't remember it. Well, it's because you forget. You forget how important God's word is for your life. And he tells us that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We should desire it. We need it. Here, we think about the means of grace. Even in the time of the Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You see how essential the means of grace are. The word, uh, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship. Here, we think about how uh, God's blessings and uh, conversions uh, we're not looking for any kind of magic tricks. You know, here we think about how uh, uh, the typical traveling evangelist, you're, you're thinking that he has some new tricks, right, suddenly that will bring life. No. The times of revival, what God's people are actually doing is that they're doing what God had commanded them to do, that they would come to him in prayer that they would be devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they would have fellowship, that we would have fellowship with one another, that there would be uh, sitting down to meals, the celebration of the Lord's Supper. The problem was that the church had given up the ways prescribed by God in his word. And the, the church is constantly looking for the results and the effect when we, we should be focused upon the means that God has given us. The means don't change. The church is constantly asking the question, what is pleasing to the world? When we should be asking the question, what is pleasing to God? In verses 6 to 7, he goes from basically the litmus test of, hey, are, are we actually doing these things? Uh, to the repentance portion, verses 6 and 7. We have all become like one who is unclean. Here, this matter of being unclean, it reminds us of the leper and the laws for the leper. That when they were in a crowded place, they were supposed to cover their mouth, but shout, unclean, unclean. 
How many of us see ourselves as sinners who are unclean? And it's not Hansen's disease or leprosy or whatever it is. It's, it's our uncleanness before God. Here, we look, I think I skipped the passage there in verse 5. This mention of, behold, you were angry and we sinned. You were angry and we sinned. Here, it's very simple. You were angry, God, God, you're angry, and we sinned. There's no desire. There's no attempt to find a scapegoat. There's no desire, there's no attempt to say, hey, someone else is responsible for my judgment. There's no one to blame for God's anger. Don't magnify the sins of others. God is angry, and you have sinned. I have sinned. Meaning that the buck stops with you. The buck stops with me. There's no more excuses. God is angry. He's angry at you because you have sinned, and there's no more excuses to be offered. Here, he also mentions this time of duration, verse 5. In our sins, we have been a long time. In our sins, we have been a long time. This is saying, hey, it wasn't just yesterday or last week that we started to sin. In our sins, we have been a long time. Satan's way is that he says, hey, why don't you just take a small step? And then after that step, away from what's right. You look up, the lightning bolt from heaven has not stricken you dead. And then Satan interprets as, hey, look at that. God didn't strike you dead. It must mean that what you did was okay. You can keep, you can keep going. He misinterprets for us that God's patience and his long suffering means his favor. But that's not the case. So instead of taking that one step, we start taking bigger and bigger steps away from what is right. Until we start taking these leaps and bounds away from him. That's, that's how things start, is you start taking that, that small step. Habits start to form. Sinful, uh, sinful patterns start to form in your life. Here, this whole matter of we've been in it a long time. How long can you continue in deliberate and defiant sin and have it not bother your conscience? Maybe that's the question we ought to be asking. It wasn't just yesterday or the day before that Christians, that Christ's church started going astray. And then he asked this question, and shall we be saved? And shall we be saved? Yes, we can say a Christian never loses his salvation. We acknowledge that. Meaning the elect will all be saved. But there is that proper question. Is it like any Christian to continue in rebellion against God and have it not bother their consciences? In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? So yes, you're right. The doctrine is all Christians will persevere to the end. But what Christian is going to be involved in sin continually? 
and just say, it doesn't bother me. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a sinner should change our hearts, should affect our hearts to live in darkness, to desire what is displeasing to the Lord. Here we go back to the, the idea of the polluted garment. The, the matter of unclean, shouting unclean, unclean. You realize that your sins justly deserve God's condemnation for an eternity. Other groups describe that there are dangerous sins and venial sins. So there's mortal sins and venial sins. Hey, we don't have any such distinction. Any and every sin is a mortal sin before God. Even that one, and none of us commit just one, but even one is enough to condemn a person for an eternity. You realize that sin is what separates you from God. It's what separates you from other people. You talk about division. You talk about isolation, separation, loneliness. Is it not sin that's often the, res the, the cause of it? And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Oh, this is telling us that even our best attempts... Even the best things that we do are entirely tainted with sin. And what, is, what remains then for, for our, our willful acts of disobedience? What about the good that God requires of us but we don't do? See, this is, this is where we often think of sin as the willful acts of disobedience of what he's commanded us not to do, we're doing those. But God never said that those are somehow worse than when he says, you ought to be doing good, and we're not doing it. The sins of omission. They're just as bad. The result there in verse 6. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. A, a leaf is blown in the wind. It has no control. It is taken away by the power of the wind. And... Here, the description of sin is that a person is like a leaf blown by the wind. It's, he's, not, he's not going his own path. It's whatever the world and the, the styles of the world carry him. Now, the Christian life cannot be described as one that is coasting in the wind. Rather, a Christian life is, is going against the wind. Also, you think about coasting if you're... If you're on a bicycle, there's only two ways that you coast. You, you coast downhill, which is bad, or you coast with the wind. But uh, you need to think about, regarding the wind, where do you need to go? You cannot go the direction of the wind because that's not your destination. You may find yourself in the wrong place. If you say, hey, hey, I find myself riding against the wind. That's never fun. But uh, if you're following Christ, you will be going against the wind. A person who is coasting is a person who is overtaken by sin, by sin's deception, by sin's corruption, and by its power. We start, to, we start to see things differently. Sin deceives us. It deceives our hearts. It makes us think that we're in control when we're not. It, we, we, we think, hey, I can. It's like the, the magazine subscription. Hey, you can start and you can stop at any time. All you have to do is call them to cancel it. Right? And who, who has the time? Who remembers to do that? But then they bill you, uh, right? When they send you the first one, they bill you for the whole year, right? And 
So also with sin. Hey, I can stop at any time. But you can't. It's like that, uh, uh, you know, that, that song, Hotel California, that you can come anytime and you leave whenever you want. No, you can't leave. There, there's no departure, right? This is the, the Proverbs talks about that the path to, to the adulterous woman's home is that it's a downhill path and there's no exit path. You, you look, there, there's dead bodies screwing all around and how dangerous that path is. That, that path is the way to death. There's no departure. There's no leaving. Here, we continue. We look at the, the sad state of worship there in verse 7. And there is no one who calls upon your name. This calling upon God's name is, is descriptive of prayer. That when we, when we pray, we're calling upon God. We're calling out to him. We're crying out to him. This statement, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is calling upon God. And calling upon God, prayer Worship in general. Prayer is a central part of worship. The statement, there is no one who calls upon your name. How, how little worship, the worship of God is of importance. Here, there was a time when morning and evening worship services were common, not only in the Reformed Presbyterian churches, but they were common even in evangelical churches. This is what happened on the Lord's Day. That people stop doing the other work. And that if you think back at older generations, some of you will remember that all kinds of churches had worship services in the morning and the evening. And families attended both. But how, how was it that leisure and greed and fun and, and comfort crept in and they staked their claim? We have habits, perhaps you've had a habit of, of going to two services, and then, then now we have the habit of not doing it. And you ask, well, what is the measure of, of dedication to the Lord? You, you look at the morning worship service. Well, what about the evening or the afternoon worship service? What about the prayer meetings? That if we're faithful to the Lord, I, I heard a, a sermon recently from Joel Beakey, he talked about how he had visited, you know, when he guest speaks and people asked about his church and, and uh, you know, he was attending the prayer meetings of other churches. And he asked about, about his at his church and he said there are 50 people there. And then they asked, well, how many are at the church? He said, well, 700. And, and he said there he was, he felt ashamed. And the people, you know, they tried not to, they tried to make light of it, right? They didn't want to make him feel bad about it. And here, is it the case? Is, it's not that his church is any, is any particularly different, right? Is it, is it the case in, in any church, right, that, that the minority of the people attend the prayer meetings? But uh, here, our desire is that God's people would be faithful. That where is God going to work? He's going to work when God's people gather together for prayer. And we see the importance of it. We see the need for it. So this is the penitence that precedes revival. And we realize that revival is actually God's people repenting. The revival is not when all kinds of people in the world become converted and come into the church. Because here, if you think about the very concept of revival, some, someone who is dead... Uh, we don't think about reviving someone who's dead because they're dead. It's reviving someone who is once alive out of a spiritual stupor. 
So the actual revival is God's work in his church. The, the after effect when God's people are faithful to follow him, to worship him, to devote our lives to him, is that there is a witness to the world. That, that is only the, the secondary, the tertiary effect. The revival is what God is doing among his people. So going to the third point, the pathetic precursor to revival in verses 8 through 12. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Here, what comes before revival or what, what is the stage of revival? In verse 8, but now, O Lord, you are our father. This is going back to the essentials, going back to the fundamentals. When God's people humble ourselves before the almighty God. So even the statement, O Lord, it's a recognition that the God of the covenant is the Lord. He is the Lord of the covenant. This is the basis of your relationship. You are not on equal footing with God. Hey, none of us had, had the right to negotiate the terms. You think about a, a modern-day job offer. You, give a, you get a job offer. The, the saying is often, hey, this is just kind of a starting point. Meaning that you can negotiate certain terms. Hey, a little bit of change of the, the increase of the salary. Hey, uh, I, I wish to start uh, in three months. I want to take this vacation. Hey, that's part of the terms. Okay, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll delay for three months. Hey, I'm going to start, but the, in, in just two months' time, I, I need to uh, plan my sister's wedding or whatever. Okay, those are terms. There's no setting of terms with God regarding the covenant. He's the Lord of the covenant. He, he gives you the terms. And it's a, these are exceedingly great terms. They cannot possibly be better for sinners and that we should give thanks to God, trust that he loves us, and he gives us the best terms we can possibly get. That you and I would be those who say, God, you've condescended to our level, to the level of sinners. That you would send your son, that we might be saved. That we would say, God, whatever terms you've given us are far better than I deserve. I will receive your promises. I will believe you at your word. That I will trust in you. I'm not going to try to negotiate because anything that we could possibly change would only make it worse. God sent his son to die on behalf of sinners. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Realize this plea of Isaiah to rend the heavens and come down. It was answered in God sending his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear the penalty for the sins of his people. Here, Isaiah verses 1 and 3. He asked that the mounds might quake at his presence. What happened at Christ's crucifixion? We're told that there was a massive earthquake. Exactly as Isaiah asked. This is God's fulfillment of rending the heavens and coming down. And that he sent his son. 
Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you delighting in him? What more do we need? We don't need any cataclysmic event. We don't need some kind of tsunami or earthquake. What we need is to believe upon Jesus Christ. The miracle that God said he would show to the Israelites was that on the third day, that this is the miracle of Jonah, was that the third day he would rise again from the dead. That is the only miracle that he said was remaining for him and that you and I are called to believe it, to trust in it, that Jesus who died was raised again, that he is the one who is without sin and because of that death could not contain him. We think also in verse 8 that God is our Father, our Heavenly Father who loves us and takes care of us. He corrects you as a loving Father. Malachi 1.6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Here, very similar, Isaiah and Malachi, they're like the the prosecutors, they're like, they're, they're like the prosecuting attorneys saying, hey, this is God's court case. This is God's uh, case against you. God is asking, where is the honor due him as a father? Also, the matter of God is potter and you are clay. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are the work of your hand. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God has a right to do with you what he pleases. And that you are a vessel of honor and not of dishonor means that he has had mercy on you. And for that, you ought to rejoice, that I ought to rejoice all the time. That God, all these vessels, you could have used us for dishonor. We could have been proof of, of hey, these are... To these are proof that God is serious about sin, that he punishes wickedness, that he's proof that there is hell, there are people in hell, that you and I are the clay, that God is the potter, means that we have no autonomy. We have no life outside of him. He is the one. We are the work of his hands. In verse 9, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, remember not iniquity forever. This is the pleading with God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That we ought to be pleading with God. That we ought to desire revival. That we are in desperate straits. The church, the society, that we ought to be praying to God regularly. Asking that he would send revival. Here. He speaks about Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. This is the description of the church. This is the description of the church at the time. This is the description of the church today. He also speaks, our house, our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. Here, uh, the temple of Solomon still existed then. So uh, Isaiah was, was speaking of the future. He was prophetically speaking that in 586... Solomon's temple would be destroyed. But he is saying that even then, right, Israel and the worship of God was in shambles, as, as if the, uh, the, the temple was already destroyed. Here, when we think about this warning, when we think about this situation, when we think about this passage, it's a reminder that God's prayer, or, or is Isaiah's prayer was answered. 
rending the heavens and coming down. We have that in Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel. Sinners can be forgiven. God showed his power in sending his son who took upon himself human flesh. The miracle of the resurrection. That is the only miracle we need to be focused on. That he raises up sinners anew. He raises you up new. Are you trusting in him? And are you turning to him in repentance? That you might forsake your sins and follow Jesus Christ. There's also the reminder of the need for revival. The state of the church, desperate and deplorable state. It means that we need revival today. Here, we think about the church as irrelevance to the world. And that's not the problem itself. It's only the symptom of the problem. When the church seeks to be like the world and to gain the world's approval, then it ceases to be the light. Think also of the work of revival. It's a reminder to us that revival is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's emphatically not the work of man. This, is, this passage reminds us that you and I, we cannot achieve what God alone gives. We cannot do, we cannot accomplish the work of God. We must look to him. We must wait upon him. It's a reminder that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. He is the one who grows. It's a reminder that at the end of it all, God should and he will receive glory in the work of Christ's church. Revival begins with the work of God. And his work is seen when God's people seek him in prayer, when we gather together and we depend upon him in prayer for the work of the church. Here, I ask you regarding your current state, are you coasting in your Christian life? Coasting is only downhill or following the winds of this world. There must be for you and for me times, prioritize times for a personal family. And corporate prayer for our lives. We must seek him. We must gather together. When you look at the accounts of any, any of the genuine revivals of the past. What we see the pattern of. Is that God's people gather together for prayer. And whether it be uh, across the Atlantic or here. We often saw that the effect was on both sides of the Atlantic. Here all over the world. God's people must gather together for prayer. We must cherish the public worship of God. That we must seek times of fellowship. We must seek time in his word. We must seek time together with one another. And that we might give glory to God and trust that he is the one who builds his church and sustains his people. That we must be serious about the worship of God. We must be serious about righteousness and obedience. That repentance begins not for the world, but it begins in Christ's church, that his judgment begins here, that we must be those who repent and take seriously the worship of God. And we go to our God together. In prayer.